0: living one fear is an unpleasant oh, sorry, have we read Revelation 1 oh I better read Revelation chapter 1 uh, I'm gonna read from verse 9 then yeah, the Word of God is way more important than anything else it's the infallible bit of the service yeah. there are some preachers who think they're infallible but they they're not Revelation 1 verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was on the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp to edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold on my life forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And this is the word of the Lord. Jesus, the living one. Now fear is an unpleasant experience connected to something we dread. And we dread because our life, we think, is threatened. It may be threatened. It may only be in our imagination fear means different things to different people. Maybe something's popping into your head now. The Bible's strong claim is that following Jesus delivers us from our fears and gives us his peace. This is true, but it needs clarifying, as we will see. John was a man who had to deal with the temptation to fear. He was banished to the penal island of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He went around the Roman Empire talking about Jesus as the Lord, the only Lord, and the only Savior. And he ended up in prison. Would he ever see freedom again? Well... Here he is on the island of Patmos. And in verse 10 tells us that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. In other words, he was a man knowing a deep sense of the presence of God in the midst of his prison situation. And he hears a voice behind him speaking to him. And he turns round and he sees the Jesus that he has known for three years in his life. But what a shock. And John becomes more frightened now than he has ever been in his life. For a moment, we need to understand it. The text puts us there. For a moment, Jesus becomes his greatest fear. For a moment, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I think that's fear, don't you? So I want to say two things this morning in the light of the living Jesus. I want us to see John fearing Jesus. Now, John had lived with Jesus for three years and had a close relationship with Jesus. In the Passover that they celebrated just before the cross, John is actually leaning on the breast of Jesus. John could describe himself as the disciple whom the Lord loved. But now he sees the awesome, glorious Jesus as depicted in verses 12 to 16. And he falls in fear at the feet of this king. Let's just read again, uh, verse 13 onwards. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came his sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him. It's a composite picture. I defy anyone to paint it. John is overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus. He sees the majesty of Jesus, the victory of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, and the brilliance of Jesus. Jesus the king, Jesus the judge, has invaded John's private space and got up very close indeed. You know, you meet those people who invade your space because they don't know any social perimeters, And you take a step back, don't you? Well, Jesus invaded the space of John right up. And John fell down. There is no feel-good factor here to start with. There will be. Bear with me. We'll get there. But isn't it interesting, even in the culture that we live, there's a whole tendency to revise books because we think they may actually distress people. Well, don't let them read the Bible. (laughs) And nobody told John that he could just simply revise this out. If that's what they're going to do to Mr. Dahl's books, what are they actually going to do with the Bible? And you don't actually have to cut stuff out and revise it. You just have to ignore it, which is what some preachers do. I know Hugh doesn't. It's okay. We have no right to cut anything out of Scripture. We're not left to that choice. Revelation faces us with this awesome Jesus. And John shows us how frightening that is. Jesus the judge is coming again, says verse 7 of chapter 1. And every eye will see him. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. How frightening is that respect because we're going to see the glorified judge of all the earth coming to the earth. And all nations will wail. How frightening is Jesus? We must preach the whole Jesus, my friends. We must not leave out who he says he is. Jesus is the righteous judge coming to do perfect justice with all created human beings, including me. I'm not outside the square here. When Paul was in Athens, he was preaching to a lot of sophisticated pagans who didn't understand a word of what he was trying to say but he did tell them about the creator God who was close to them, and he did end with Jesus, didn't he? For the times of ignorance God overlooked, chapter 17, verse 30 of Acts, now he commands all people everywhere, including here, to repent, to turn away from our sin, and trust in the only Savior he has given, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This world has not seen the last of Jesus. And the glorified, righteous judge is coming. Revelation chapter 6, I don't have time to read, 13 to 17 But you will read it maybe at your leisure and discover just the awesome nature of the Son of God coming in all His power and glory. And people crying out, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Who is able to stand? And then Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 17, where Jesus is depicted as riding on a white horse, the faithful and the true. And if you read that context, I think it is quite frightening. John feared Jesus. And I say to you, my dear friends, through John and through the reading of the Word of God as I've given it to you so far this morning, we ought to fear Jesus. And Jesus ought to be our greatest fear. It might be spiders for you in other ways. Sorry about that, if it is. It might be, I don't know what it might be for you that you think is so threatening to your life. But your greatest fear is the glorious return of the righteous judge. Well, the good news is that Jesus does not leave John on the ground, but raises him to his feet. Look again at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, and he gets him up, doesn't he? And I want you to know and I want you to hear that Jesus does this with us too. Because Jesus who is our greatest fear is either this morning already our greatest comfort <laughs> Yeah, I did say that or he could become your greatest comfort if he isn't. Wonder where you go t- in life for comfort? Bit of Netflix, bit of food, bit of drink. Bit of work, bit of leisure, bit of fun, bit of entertainment, bit of a holiday. None of these things are entirely wrong. I'm not despising them. Where do you go for your comfort? It's a serious point because the culture is telling us that the things that I have mentioned are the only comforts in life but they're no comfort for eternity. So Jesus comforting John. And Jesus does two things. Number one, there is a comforting touch. Do you notice that? But he laid his right hand on me saying, I've sat t- chatting to some people at Word Alive that I was recently attending and a friend of mine went past me and he just touched me with his right hand. It was a pure touch. He was saying, I think, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm imagining this, Morris, you're my friend, and it's good to see you. Though he never said a word. Touch. And he placed his right hand on me. The feel-good gospel factor of Jesus now invades John's fear. And we must get the contrast here. Here's the almighty risen Lord of verses 12 to 16, who will take down all his rivals mentioned in this book, satanic or human. They're all depicted, interestingly, as beasts. When God wants to depict evil, he gives you a set of beasts. Beasts. Wonder why that is. Because often in our Western culture, we are naive about evil. To, his de- to John, his beloved follower, follower, though, Jesus now gently touches him. Jesus could have destroyed him. And he gently touches him the friendly touch of grace and peace, which is mentioned in verse four. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are from his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth. Sometimes we touch people because they're troubled and we do it in a pure and a kind and friendly way. Well, here we have the touch of Jesus, grace for the undeserving, peace for the threatened, mercy for the helpless. And John rises under Jesus. And his greatest fear is now his most glorious comfort. And for many of us, that is also true this morning, isn't it? You're glad that this is where I'm spending most of the time, aren't you? Fearing Jesus is an awesome prospect, but to know that we are comforted by Jesus, it really is such a joy. Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King, our Judge, is our best friend. Sometimes people walk past you because they don't want to talk to you. I don't blame them. I'm a weirdo. Oh, I am actually. Just ask Linda, she'll tell you. But Jesus never walks past us, He never excludes us. He's our greatest comfort because He's our best friend. Surely that should speak to our mental health issues and our emotional turmoil issues too. Yes, I know we have them, and they're not easy to manage. And we may have to have help in all kinds of other ways. But surely in understanding... The friendliness of Jesus in his tenderness must speak into our mental health issues with distinctiveness and with power and with tender love. We cannot leave all of this to the culture. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and grief to bear what a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer. And I suppose this touch of Jesus, I'm speculating, well, I'm not speculating, but it's not actually in the text here. But the touch surely in 10 anticipates the eternal tender touch of Revelation 7 when we're told that he will wipe away all tears from our eyes, all tears, and we'll never cry again. And some of you may have cried through the night where nobody else has seen you, and you've been awake, and you're like a solitary bird on the roof, and everybody else is asleep, and you can't sleep. There's coming a touch personally from the Lord Jesus in your life eternally that will wipe it all away. Now tell me, where would you get comfort like that? Other than in Jesus himself. So there is a comforting touch. But John, although he is physically touched... We are not those who do get physically touched, in this world at least. And for John and for us, it's not enough for the physical touch. Like the little girl who's crying upstairs, and uh, she wants somebody to come up, and her mom shouts because she's busy, well, Jesus is with you, because it's a Christian family. It's a Christian story. And the little girl shouts, but I want physical arms. And you can understand that, can't you? Of course you do. So we don't get a physical touch with Jesus. So although the touch is here, the comforting voice is what John gets and what we get. And that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my time for the rest of the day. No, I'm not. uh, not. It's half past 11 we're finishing, isn't it? Yes, okay. The song, See What a Morning, has this refrain in it. The voice that spans the years, speaking life, stirring hope, bringing peace to us, will sound until he appears. For he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. The risen Jesus is here. Not because I turned up. (laughs) No, not at all. Because you turned up. We'll put it on you. He's here. He's speaking. We have his words. John wrote them down. He's commanded to write so that we hear what was said to him in order that it might be the comfort for us, as it was for John. Jesus is the coming one going to judge all evil. And he is saying in these verses that we have nothing to fear from him when he comes. The ultimate panic attack of Revelation chapter six, fall on us, who can stand? That's the ultimate panic attack. It's not for us if we belong to Jesus. Jesus is the savior who has loved us and freed us from all of this by his blood shed on the cross for our sins. And from Jesus Christ, verse five, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Nothing to fear. We have been loved, and we've been freed. And therefore, verses 17 to 18, we've got there, reinforces that saving love. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as, as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. I am... I am is the sacred name for God himself. First revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 15, known as Yahweh. I am who I am. This reveals to Moses the God who is all sufficient, able to save his people from the worst life-threatening situation that they could ever live in. For Israel, it was God coming to save them from their Egyptian enemies. And he did, didn't he? Got to read salvation history, my friends. The Bible's not a boring book. If you get the big picture of it, how God is the God all-sufficient, able to save us. I am who I am. And the I am is applied to Jesus here. And literally it means, I will be present to be all my people need me to be. Literally, I will be present to be all my people need me to be. So Jesus is the all-sufficient God, present to completely save his people, including you and me if we are. Jesus will be all we need. Be, need him to be. You might meet somebody and you think they're amazing, and then you get to know them <laughs> and you realise, oh, they're not so amazing, are they? Bit disappointing. Can't trust them for everything, can you? That's what you can't say about Jesus. There are three truths, therefore, in this verse that underline the all-sufficiency of Jesus. The Lord really is saying to us, I can do because you can't do. (laughs) I have to keep learning this. I live in a culture that is, I can do, isn't it? I can do. I've got a scheme. I've got money. I've got education. I can do. I've got theology. I've got a preaching gift. I can do. Jesus is saying to us in these three truths, I can do because you can't do. Three things. Notice his sovereignty over all history. Jesus is the first and the last it's a God title it's given to God in Isaiah 41 44 and 48 sorry I'm gonna to have to skip those ones because they will be here for a long time God is the first and the last God is there at the eternal in eternity past before the beginning and God will be at the end in eternity future I am the first and I am the last I govern sovereignly over all history. Morris, you're going through the Birkenhead Tunnel today. You do believe in that kind of providence, don't you? Jesus is the A to Z of all history and in complete control of all things. Revelation 5 tells us Jesus is the scroll of the Father's perfect purpose over all history in his hands. And therefore, providence means that Jesus, the Lord, will see to everything and nothing will be missing. He's the A to Z. He's the first. He's the last. And therefore, he governs all in between those two things all things, not some things. Christ on the throne is for us and not against us. There's no need to fear as embattled followers of Jesus. Jesus will save his church forever and ever and renew the cosmos perfectly. And the local church, Hoylake Evangelical Church, is the visible evidence that Jesus is risen from the dead. You may be doubting the resurrection of Jesus. Well, look around you. There's a whole lot of evidence in this room that Jesus is risen from the dead. The local church is a visible evidence. Why is there still church, God's people, Trusting in Jesus, in the world today, why? Why is there? Why in China is the growth of the church awesome that they think if it continues at its present rate, it will it will overwhelm America? Who told God to keep out of China? Well, the Chinese. Some of the Chinese people did not all of them. But he didn't. Christ is sovereign, my friends. Everything is working for our good. Even the secular culture that we know is in many ways against gospel thinking and biblical truth. Even that is working for us. I'm not complacent. I'm not ignorant. I'm distressed by some of it but it's still working out, isn't it? It's all in the hands of Jesus. It's all on the scroll. God has not been surprised by secular thinking in the West. Christ is sovereign over all history, and that should strengthen us and get us on our feet to stand up for the gospel. It's all working for us. The gospel cannot be defeated, my friends, and the gospel will kneel to no one because Christ is the first and the last. Secondly, victory over death. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. Jesus rose from the dead, and death does not rule over him. He's the firstborn from the dead. We will not be attending the funeral of the living one. Now, a strong fear in life is death, isn't it? But Christ has defeated it. Many in history within the church would would die and will continue to die for their faithful following of Jesus. But the good news, my friends, is that Jesus can't be killed off. They did that once and they failed. So much for political power, eh? Jesus really did die once for our sins, and he rose again as proof of payment. So death is not the last word for his redeemed people. If you're one of his redeemed people, you don't need to be afraid. The victory is complete. It's already perfect. We know how this story ends, and it ends by us, if we die, rising from the dead and be given new bodies. Two years ago, I sat in a hospital room. My mum had gone to be with Jesus. There was definitely grief, but there was also victory. As I looked at her bed and her body, I saw her her slippers under the bed, and I thought, well, you won't be needing them now. <laughs> well, she wouldn't. My mom was with the Lord. I occasionally visit her grave, not because I need to talk to her, because I don't. She's not there, actually, and she's nowhere near it. She's with the Lord. Yes, I remember with her with affection. Of course I must. But I rejoice every time I go to that graveside. It's not often. In the victory of Jesus. Her body's coming out. That's what I say to myself. Victory. There they all were, 39 horses all lined up at the Grand National. You may not approve of the betting, that's okay. And there they all were. But there's only one ever gone to be one victor, wasn't there? And nobody knew how that was going to turn out. I support a particular team. You know, I was desperate for a victory yesterday. Only to be crushed yet again by another defeat. I'm glad that my... I'm on Team Jesus. The victory is sure. It's already in. Victory over death. You would think that Jesus would actually be very popular in an age that sees people dying and reports death on a daily basis, and yet he's not. Have we convinced ourselves of our own little invincibility? Well, this gets us on our feet and gives us hope in grief to go running the race home. The living Lord says, I was dead, he died on a cross, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. Victory. And finally, and thirdly, authority over eternity. And I hold the keys to death and to Hades. You buy a house and you finally get the keys. Access to the house. It's ours. Have you ever lost your keys? We went to Quinter Camp once, many years ago, and we left all our keys on the wall outside. And off we went for a week. There was nothing worth nicking in the house. I mean, they could help themselves, really. I mean, I wouldn't blame them for not going in the house. But there's always a panic. Where's the keys? Who's got the keys? You have the keys. No, you have the keys. Who, uh, well, on you go. Jesus has the keys to unlock the door to salvation. Jesus has got the keys to unlock the door to the prison of condemnation. How important is that? Mind you, he doesn't lose the keys, so you're all right. The second death, which is mentioned in the book of the Revelation, is eternal banishment from God's glorious and good presence. The keys to open the door to eternal imprisonment is the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. He died and rose again to save sinners. Do you hear me? We enter the eternal prison through the one who bled and died for us on a cross and rose again. do you hear me? Well, do you hear Jesus? We go past the one, the living one who died for us, and say, my will, not yours. And he confirms that will by unlocking the door and saying, there you go. Our greatest fear is Jesus. This is a comforting voice, if you would understand it. For this morning, in this church, which you won't find out in the culture in the coffee shops, a loving warning is being given. You can take the risk and ignore the warning or you can be a very wise person and heed it and come and turn to Jesus and say, Lord, save me. The church is a spiritually safe space for all people. The door to hell remains shut for us and the door to heaven is wide open. (laughs) Jesus is not only our judge, Judged for our sin, but he's also our savior. King Jesus is over the church as Lord and among the churches in saving grace. So the stars, the angels of the churches, and the lampstands, seven of them, mean that local churches shine out this Jesus to a lost world. And we are held securely by the all-sufficient Jesus. There is hope here then that comforts us, a comfort for personal sin in its guilt and shame, a comfort for broken communities in perfect healing, a comfort for a fractured world dominated by evil powers that is destroying the nations, a comfort for the church in the middle of the fight. We're about to land. We stand before the mirror maybe tomorrow. You can say three things if you're a follower of Jesus. And he's your greatest comfort. I am dying. So I trust in the Christ who died for me and lives forever. Victory. I can say, I am living, so I rely on Jesus, the living one, who is the Lord Almighty, who reigns forever over all my enemies. He's the first and the last. Take a chill pill. What's the panic all about? What really is threatening my life? I'm living eternally. And I'm rising. Well, one day I will. So I rejoice that Jesus died and rose again to bring me home forever. And you too. He is the keys that opened heaven to me and closed hell to me. What comfort in the all-sufficient Jesus. He is for us, my friends. And can I address you as one more time as a person who may not be a follower of Jesus? Your greatest fear could end today. Couldn't it? Jesus could remove that fear of his coming to judgment by giving you salvation free to you. At great cost to Him. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. You could leave this building with the eternal comfort of the Savior who was judged on your behalf on the cross. You could leave this Knowing that the living one has entered your life and unlocked the door of salvation to you personally, you could live forever under his control and walk out into eternal life from the grave. This Jesus can get you up and help you stand and live forever. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. I have the keys of death and Hades. Amen. Let's pray. It's all about Jesus, my friends. No, no, I mean it. It's not false humility. It's not a show. It's not an image. So let's allow the Lord to invade our space then, eh? Our Father, we thank you for sending your one and only Son, the Lord Jesus, into this world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, because you're precious to us. The greatest fear of our life, your judgment upon our sin, is removed. You took it away on the cross. And our destiny is heaven forever and a new creation to live with you, the living one, and delight in you forever and ever, living a glorious life. And so, sometimes we are frightened and we struggle with fear, but we come back to you afresh and we stand under your sovereignty, your absolute control over all things, and we are safe. Blessed be your name, in Jesus' name, amen.